Well, good morning. I don't know how many of you were here last week for Pastor Gerald's message, but for those of us who was, were here, wasn't that awesome? It was awesome. I love the way he said that our expectations, if we're not careful, can become an idol. And we need to lay our expectations to surrender them before what God's will is. I also love the way he was talking about the Pharisees and this phrase, they were scandalized by God's grace for people far from him. Well, as we're looking into the Gospels, um, I just love the way that we get to get a picture of Jesus in the Gospels. And I just feel like over and over again, we see two parts. He's got this unbroken connection with his father where there's this intimacy. It's intimate. It's organic. And then he has this unhindered flow of his spirit touching people's lives. A couple weeks ago, my family was able to attend a Christian family camp in upstate New York that we've been going to for nearly 20 years now. The first night I sat down across from a friend whose name is Pete, Pastor Pete, pastors a church in Virginia, and since I knew I'd be speaking today, I said, have you ever preached on this passage where, you know, the woman comes and pours the perfume over Jesus' feet at the Pharisee's house, and he says, yeah, you, you got to get a book. Kenneth Bailey wrote a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. There's a chapter on this. It's going to be awesome. And so... Thanks to technology, I downloaded it on my Kindle and read that chapter and a few others that night. But imagine my surprise when the next morning, uh, the keynote speaker for the week had gotten hospitalized on Friday. Martin Sanders was already going to be at the camp doing a daily seminar, as only Martin can do. And they asked him to fill in as the keynote speaker also because the guy didn't show up. So imagine my surprise on Sunday morning when I saw Martin get up and the slide popped up and it was my passage, Luke 7, 36 to 50. So between the timely question to Pastor Pete and the resource and Martin already preaching on it two weeks ago, I hopefully will have something for you today from God. That's the hope. Um, so we've been in Luke for a while. You know, it starts with this amazing series of miracles, angelic visitations surrounding his birth and his cousin John's birth. We don't learn an awful lot about Jesus as a child, except that when he was the age of the kids downstairs in Roots, he was dialoguing with the smartest teachers of the law and explaining to them what they were missing in the nuances of the Old Testament. He, uh, as a teenager, it says he went and was submissive to his parents, and that he grew in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. And then it's not until he's 30 that he gets on the scene again, and he's Baptized, as you know, by John the Baptist, and the dove comes down, and there's a physical sense of the Spirit of God coming upon him. First thing that happens is he's sent into the wilderness for a 40-day fast, at which time he's tempted, and again, we see how the knowledge of the Scriptures is rooted into him. But then he leaves that experience, and he goes to the synagogue, and he gets up and reads from Isaiah 61, and he says this, this prophetic writing is fulfilled today where he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor to set the captives free to give sight to the blind and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and so we quickly see that in the last three chapters he begins to do just that with authority and with power he commands evil spirits and they leave sick people flock to him he lays hands on them and everyone gets healed. Lepers cleansed, paralyzed people walking, blind people seeing, even dead people resurrected. He also gives the great moral teaching. 
Who could forget a few weeks ago when Doug had the people with the planks in their eyes walking around on stage trying to give each other hugs? The sense of look at your own junk before you try to fix the specks in other people's lives. And then last week with Gerald's message on John the Baptist, you know, sitting in jail, his expectation was that Jesus was going to redeem and free them from Roman oppression, and here he is sitting in jail, and his messengers say, you know, what should we tell John? And he says, well, hang around with me for a couple days and just tell him what you're seeing. And it was the same story again. The, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the dead are raised. God's power is at work. So Jesus is kind of on a roll, but at the same time that all of this is happening and people are flocking to him, the religious establishment isn't quite so enthralled. In chapter 6, we read that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched closely to see if he'd heal on the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath. Of course, Jesus did heal on the Sabbath because he liked to mess with them. Um, And after that, it says that the teachers and the Pharisees were furious, and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Last week in the passage with John the Baptist, um, after that little scenario with the messengers, Jesus goes on a bit of a little discourse, and he says, uh, you know, the Pharisees, they rejected God's purposes for them when they refused to submit to the baptism of John. So that's the context of the Pharisees and what's going on. But there's one other element that's going on at this time. Not only is he healing everybody, not only is he rocking the establishment, he's also doing something unprecedented. He's extending grace and acceptance to people that really have never been given that kind of religious acceptance before. The people that are the sinners, the the drunkards, the tax collectors, the sexually immoral. And in the midst of all of that, we find ourselves at the passage we're gonna look at today. I'd like to pray as we begin. Lord, I ask right now that you would show up today in your power by impacting every heart with your love as we've just been singing. Lord, would you help everyone here to hunger and to yearn to personally experience this overwhelming love and grace that you offer. I ask that everyone here would leave with having been released from any shame and regret and sense of not measuring up. And at the same time, we pray that that would click in our spirits and you would uncork a passionate love for you that could be as extravagant and contagious as what we're gonna look at today. In Jesus' name, amen. So our story picks up in verse 36, and it simply says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Pretty matter of fact, get an invitation, show up, sit down to eat. Now, if any of you have ever actually done this, either hosted a dinner party or actually gone to a dinner party, you know it just doesn't quite roll that way, does it? A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of attending someone's birthday dinner at a home that I'd never been to before. And as I'm no longer able to see quite like I did 30 years ago, driving down, I couldn't quite you know, figure out which one was the right house I was going to and finally parked the car. As we got out of the car and began to walk across the street, the host had been looking for us and had come out on the porch, greeted us with a hug. And you know what happened next. 
We were invited in, we were offered something to drink, and rather than sitting down immediately at the table, we hung out in the kitchen for a while, because you had to wait till everyone showed up before you could sit down to eat, right? A lot can happen in those few minutes, and we're gonna see it's been an amazing story of what's happened between the time that Jesus walked in and he sat down to eat, because it continues as follows. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. There's a consensus amongst the different translations and others that I read that everyone was very clear this woman was a prostitute and it was known to everyone except maybe Jesus in the town that that's what she was and so you have to ask yourself this is like the weirdest party ever right you're at a special dinner with some religious people and the most notorious you know woman of the town happens to show up with a bunch of perfume and then she's washing his feet now, part of the problem is that in our culture, we would sit down at a table, maybe a kitchen table or a dining room table, but in that culture, they kind of had more of like a, on the floor, slightly raised up for the food, and everyone would kind of lean in, and the feet would be out to the side. But still, you have to ask yourself, this is, this is just weird. What's going on? Why is she doing it? Why is she crying? Why isn't anyone shooing her out of the room? We get a little bit more color about what happened in verses 44 to 46. Jesus turns toward the woman and he says to Simon, Simon is the one who invited him, the Pharisee, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. This is where that book I was suggested to read was really helpful to get a little bit more pick color of what was going on. Clearly this woman showed up there with a flask because in her heart was a desire to show love to Jesus. But it's very unlikely that she came expecting to do what she actually did because if you're planning on washing someone's feet, you might want to bring a towel, not just your hair, right? As Jesus entered the house, the customary um, courtesies may not be looking out the front porch and greeting them as they walked in, but clearly in that culture, you would be greeted with a hug and a kiss. If any of you are Italians or no Italians, it happens today, you get a kiss. Is it one, is it two, is it three? I don't know, but it's something, right? In that culture where they have dusty roads and they have sandals, everyone would have washed the feet. For a rabbi to have said grace without oil was deemed to be inappropriate, so clearly some people had oil. So the understanding here is that this was an intentional decision by the Pharisee to invite Jesus, but it wasn't to make him feel loved and accepted the way I was greeted into the birthday party. It was to snub him. It was to make a statement. And then you have to say, well, why did the woman do it the way she did and when she did? Clearly she was there when Jesus came because Jesus says from the time I entered she's been doing this. And what was 
put forth in this author's understanding, and it certainly makes sense to me, is that she was there wanting to express gratitude for the love and acceptance she'd already experienced from Jesus when she witnessed this rude snubbing by the host, and her heart was broken. And it was in that brokenness that she decided, I'm gonna at least wash his feet and care for him. Makes me wonder as I read through this story, what must it have been like to have been on the other side of Jesus? There's a story of a famous uh, professor and preacher named Tony Campolo. He was a speaker when I was in college, so he's gotta be really old by now. But uh, he says that he was teaching one day a class and he asked the question, um, what would Jesus say to a prostitute? And one of the precocious students raised his hand and said, I don't know, he never met a prostitute. And he said, I was all ready to turn to this passage in Luke chapter seven. Oh, yes, he did. When he realized, you know what, he's right. See, Jesus never met a prostitute. He met a woman who was broken. He saw people's hearts. It's also interesting to imagine what was the expectation of the people at the party of what Jesus should be doing when he is being so lavishly um, presented with this love? In that culture, men didn't even talk to women. Um, certainly, women weren't taking their hair down outside of their homes, and even in today, in many places in the Middle East, they even are all covered up. Surely, they would have expected Jesus to be embarrassed or shocked by it, and have told her to be quiet. So we see that there's a snub that's occurred. We see a woman who's got this tears and this lavish love being expressed. And now we get to the forgiveness part. So Jesus tells them a story. Actually, I guess I need to read about Simon. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus said, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he said, tell me. Verse 41. Two people owed a certain money lender money. One owed him 500 denarii and one 50. A denarii was the, a day's wage for a laborer in that day. So roughly two years worth of work one person owed and roughly two and a half months the other one owed. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Then he gets to his principle. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. I think it's interesting in the story that Jesus isn't insinuating that Simon is without sin, just that maybe his sin wasn't quite as grievous as hers, and yet I might argue that it might actually be the opposite way around. I mean, imagine, you're one of the few people in human history that has the opportunity to invite God himself in the form of Jesus to dinner, and what do you do with that experience? You decide to willfully snub him and treat him just with disrespect out of the get-go, like, you know, who do you think you are coming in and changing our religious kind of deal? And when I think about the woman as a prostitute, I don't think of her as this evil, horrible, 
you know, sex-crazed person because, at least from my limited understanding of how the prostitution rings work today and child slavery and so forth, most people, they don't really wake up one day and say, this is my goal in life. They end up there through a series of exploitation and hardship and, and destitution, really. Maybe as Jesus looked at her, he didn't even really see that with as much disgust as Simon thought. And Simon, in his kind of self-righteousness, seemed to be totally oblivious to what the snub really was that he did. And the story ends with Jesus saying, in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So now you know the story. Now you're about where I was two weeks ago with a good understanding of all that's going on in the background of the story. And the big question of the day is, so what? How does this make a difference in our lives? You know, I was really struck when that phrase, what's it like to be on the other side of Jesus, began to ruminate a bit in my heart. One of the homework assignments that Martin gave us at his seminars at the camp I was at was, go talk to two or three people that know you well and ask them, what's it like to be on the other side of me? And he said, and if you do this and someone says, oh, you're great, it's awesome, all that means is they're afraid of you and you gotta go to someone else because they're not being honest. I had the opportunity to have interactions with couple of my family members. And although I like to think of myself like a really good guy and a good heart and a great dad, there are times when it's not so great to be on the other side of me that I'm argumentative and I'm prideful and I'm winning my point and I don't care about their feelings and it's, it's not too pretty. There are many times when it's not so fun to be married to me either. We say we want to live like Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if God would do a work in us and we would begin to look at and deal with other people in our lives like Jesus with unconditional love, with caring about the relationship more than about the principle. So that's my first uh, takeaway for you. Find out what it's like to be on the other side of you and try to be humble in your response and ask God to change you to be more like him. The second one's been a little bit more uh, challenging to process, and it's the idea of snubbing. You know, you see the scene with, with what um, the Pharisee did, and you think, you know, what an idiot you are. You know, why would you go out of your way to disrespect Jesus? Are you kidding me? You should at least want to pray for your kids and your family and touch them and bless them. As I was kind of thinking about, you know, how do I snub Jesus myself? I was reminded of a little booklet I'd read when I was in college called My Heart. Christ's home. It's an allegory of, you know, for many of us, when we began our journey with Jesus, it was something like this. Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I know I'm a sinner. Come into my heart. Live in me. There's a passage in Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus is quoted as saying, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone will open the door and invite me in, I'll eat with him and he with me. There's a sense of him entering our heart. Well, the booklet goes on to basically say, imagine that your house is the home that Jesus lives in. And it goes through different little chapters of you know, the kitchen and bedroom and the workshop. And, and one of them is the living room. And in the description, Jesus says to the guy, I like this place. If you'll make a fire and come and meet with me every morning at 6.30, I'll be here. 
Let's just hang out. Let's just be friends. And they do that for a short time, and he gets busy, and he forgets all about Jesus being a guest in his house, and he forgets all about the living room. And a few months later, as he's rushing off to work, he just catches a glimpse of the living room and the fire, and he kind of goes, I didn't know you were here. Jesus, I'm embarrassed. What, what's going on? And Jesus said, I told you I would be here every day. I just want to be in relationship with you. And it made me think that if I've invited someone to my home and they're a guest overnight and I don't even say hi to them, I don't even acknowledge their presence, what a snub that would be. And yet if I'm honest, that's a big part of what life can be like when you have kids and you work and you're spinning plates and running around. About a couple months ago, I had a chance to do a, a retreat day and one of the things I was... Um, just trying to do is to kind of get more centered in my walk with the Lord. And I felt like the passage that he led me to was in John 15, where he says, I'm the vine and, and you're the branches. And the translation I was reading that day phrased it this way. If you remain in me, a relationship intimate and organic, the harvest will be abundant. But separated from me, you can do nothing. The invitation for us is to have an intimate relationship with Jesus. If we're Christians and we've invited him into our life, he's there, and yet it's so easy to snub him and just leave him at the living room while we go about our lives. That was the easier snub to, to stomach. I remember one of the more uh, painful parts of my journey was a number of years ago when I did a kind of a full confession with my mentor. I remember confessing this, this one situation in particular, and he said, tell me, where was Jesus when you were doing that? I didn't even have a, a, a way to answer that question. It was, it was as if I just had compartmentalized. That was when I really wasn't following Jesus. That's what I was doing, my, my own thing. But he said, no, Jesus is always with you. having to really just process that through the Lord and to go, wow, I take you to some pretty dark places. I, I let you see some pretty dark things and there's a lot of dark stuff that comes out of my mouth at times. I wonder if it feels that much different to Jesus when that's going on in my life as it did at this dinner party when Simon refused to give him the, the greeting and the washing of the feet. And I wonder if we had more awareness of the ways in which we do snub Jesus, if it might do something in our own internal experience of gratitude for the forgiveness. Who will love more? The one forgiven 500 days wages or the one who's been forgiven 50? But we have to address the tears, I think, as part of this story. It's, it's quite unbelievable, really, to see the outbursts of this woman and here's what I've been asking and mulling over in my spirit with the Lord, especially in the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing to preach. Is this normal? Is it, is it really available that every human being that encounters you would be wrecked like this woman with gratitude? Or is it okay that most of us are kind of a little bit more civilized and you know, we go to church and we're grateful, of course, for our blessings and we say thank you and we say grace before meals, but... but 
I mean, who's ever just lost it that crazily with this abandoned affection to Jesus? I don't know that we're all supposed to have that kind of experience. Maybe not all of us are that horrible sinners and needed that kind of lavish love from Jesus. But one thing's for sure, I think my heart's a lot harder than it's supposed to be and that God wants it more pliable and more soft. One of the um, talks that Martin gave, um, he referenced a book called River Dwellers. Uh, He has one of his associates that has written a book, and he said it's about living in the flow of the Spirit. And I was struck by some of the descriptions of some of the people and their experience with God. This first quote is from a guy who was a famous um, evangelist and revivalist, I think in the 1800s in America, named Charles Finney. Here's what he describes. I think he was a lawyer before he ended up becoming a, a preacher. The Holy Spirit seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves of liquid love. I wept aloud with joy and love. I literally bellowed out the unspeakable overflow of my heart. Another quote was from a guy named D.L. Moody, who there's a whole school in Chicago named after him, another famous preacher and evangelist. He said, God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. It was just so overwhelming. You know, I love that, that phrase in that song we sing today. Hurricane, God's a hurricane, we're a tree and we're bending beneath the weight of his, of his love and his mercy. Well, in the book, the guy mentions that he and Martin Sanders do these um, weekend retreats at churches called Holy Spirit Weekends. And one that they did in a church in Boston recently, there was this quote from one of the participants. He said, I was overpowered by a blast of love so strong and overwhelming that I began to sob uncontrollably. I knew I was experiencing God's love and that love took the form of a light so overwhelming, illuminating every secret place in my very being. I don't know what God wants for all of us to experience. But wouldn't it be interesting if he had more to pour into us than we've experienced yet? And we began, we began to get hungry to say, God, would you, would you wreck my heart like this woman's? Make me more aware of my sinfulness and how much I need your grace so that I don't take it for granted. Romans 5.5 says this, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Part of what the Holy Spirit in us is supposed to do is it's supposed to give us an experiential understanding of his love. And yet if we're full of pride and conceit, ambition and self-seeking, if we're full of the distractions of the world, it doesn't leave a lot of room for God's spirit to be at work. So what's it like to be on the other side of you? Where might we be snubbing? Is there a lack of tears in your life that potentially God wants to touch? And finally, the experience of forgiveness. Jesus offers forgiveness to everyone to the broken, sinful woman, to the arrogant, prideful, snubbing Pharisee. But so many people fail to experience it. Why is that? 
Why do some people feel such a wave of gratitude and forgiveness and other people just don't seem to have their heart even scratched with any tenderness? Sometimes I think it's because if we're honest, we just don't really think we're that bad. We don't really see ourselves as sinners. We don't really think we snub Jesus. And quite frankly, sometimes we think compared to the rest of our family or people we know, he's probably pretty psyched that we're on his team. Sometimes we're just blind to our own planks in our eyes as we walk around. But I think for many of us, you know, I've been a part of probably, I don't know how many, but many of the restorative prayers I still want to, recommend to everyone if you haven't done that or if you haven't done it in the last year or two sign up for one of these restorative prayers it's life changing most of the time when I'm in one of those prayer sessions at some point in it someone's crying God's touching a nerve they're experiencing forgiveness they're hearing him speak his love into the life in a personal way but sometimes we don't feel overwhelming gratitude because if we're honest we don't really feel forgiven I know this is true for more than just a few in this room. I've talked to many of you. Person that's had an affair five years ago and still can't forgive himself for it, still doesn't feel worthy of being forgiven. The list could go on and on. But sometimes I wonder if part of the problem is we just really don't understand what the gospel is. Paul, who was a Pharisee himself, He was one that was holding the coats of the people that killed the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in the early part of Acts. And then God God, uh, reaches out and touches his life. And he ends up authoring a good chunk of the New Testament. Listen to what he writes about his fellow Jewish people in chapter 10. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites that they would be saved. For I can testify about them. They are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. It's kind of the way we're hardwired at times, isn't it? You kind of, you get what what you pay for. No pain, no gain. You want to be accepted by God, you clean your life up. You start following the rules, you do better. You yell at your kids, you say, I'm sorry, and you say, I'm not going to do it again, and you're going to be better next time. And ingrained in many of us is this sense that it's not really about a hopeless situation that we could never pay back that God's forgiven. It's about a, we'll give you a second chance, try harder to be a good person. Earlier in Romans, Paul writes and he says this, no one is declared righteous in God's sight by obeying the law. Rather, it's through the law that we become conscious of our sin. It's kind of like the point of all the rules isn't so that you can really be disciplined and be a good person and earn God's favor and get to heaven. It's to hopefully help you realize this is hopeless. I need a savior. It continues. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. As Martin talked about forgiveness in his talk, I love the way he phrased it. He said it's release. 
It's being released from the debt of your sins. It's feeling released from it. When you forgive others, it's releasing them from having to be punished anymore for what they've done to you. And we're meant to experience it. Religious activity, religion, is us trying to do the work. Grace is understanding what Jesus is offering. He paid the penalty for us. We're going to segue to communion as we end today. I think it's so fitting that as we come and we, and we remember that Jesus died, his body was broken, his blood was shed. For some of you, you might feel sinful. You might come in this morning and you're just kind of like just hoping for another chance. I hope that you can really experience today as you take communion a father who loves you, who says, let me, through my spirit, infuse into your heart love for me and love for others. Some of us maybe came in and were a little bit too self-satisfied. We don't really understand or acknowledge the ways in which we do snub him. Jesus says, receive my love and forgiveness. I release you from your sins. You're forgiven. I sense that what Jesus would want to say to you today is this. Don't just remember me dying on the cross for you as you take communion today. Remember the way I talked to prostitutes and sinners. I speak to people. I know you're broken. And I'm inviting you in to experience a life-changing grace and love. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. Those who are serving can come to begin the process of giving. just want to bring one verse to your attention from 1 Corinthians as they begin to distribute. We'll, we'll eat it together as, as we all have them. Paul writes about communion and he says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we're more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under, under judgment. So the offer this morning as we take communion and as we close, I just want you just to, to interact with God on your own. If your heart's a little calloused, would you just say, God, would you, would you open my heart to your love? If you have a lot of love and gratitude in you, but for whatever reason you've got a governor on it and you just don't express it, take a risk this week and express your gratefulness to God in some tangible way. And if you're aware of some of the ways that you've snubbed him, just confess your sin to him. Say, Jesus, I want to start afresh. I want to be filled with your presence and your love. Thank you.